0: Well, good morning. My name's Andy. I'm part of the team here at BCV, and it is really great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining with us in our online service. Well, we're continuing on with our sermon series in Mark's Gospel. And if you missed last week, there's a chance to catch up. You can catch the talk on our website, and don't forget to do that. But today, we've got lots to talk about. It's really connected with last week's passage. So, again, I'd recommend that you go back and catch Matthew's sermon Uh, from Mark chapter 4. It would be really great. Uh, But today we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 verses 1 to 20 where we're going to be witnessing Jesus in conflict with a severely demonized man. So I just want to jump right in straight away and read it for us. Here we go. Uh, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes and then Jesus got out of the boat A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day amongst the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted out at the top, of his voice. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, "Come out of this man, you impure spirit." Then Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" "My name is legion," he replied, "for we are many." And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs is feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, Well, I want to start by doing something I probably should have started when we began the Gospel of Mark and talked briefly about demons in Mark 's Gospel and demons and deliverance in general, just really briefly. Uh, Mark has shown us thus far a couple of occasions where Jesus is casting out unclean spirits, and that's Mark 's favorite term for a demon, an unclean spirit, and these are spirits that are tormenting people and causing chaos. In their lives and in their communities. And each time it happens in Mark's gospel it's Mark making claims about Jesus and wanting us to believe and put our own faith in him. And kind of the first thing about Mark and demons is it's always all about Jesus' authority. Uh, he's presenting him as Son of God and the Kingdom bringer, the anointed Messiah, with authority. So Jesus, the King of the kingdom, has this authority and he's come to set the captives free from sickness and sin and the works of the enemy. So the demonic in Mark is all about Jesus' authority, but it's also all about how Jesus always brings order from chaos and how uh, that points our our faith to him as the son of God. Time after time, we're going to see it today, Jesus encounters people and communities that are tortured and traumatized by demons, unclean spirits, and they're kept in cycles of Chaos And Jesus drives out the unclean spirits, heals sickness, and he brings order and calm and peace where there was chaos. Uh, And that's part of what Mark is trying to communicate. Jesus is Lord over storms, he's Lord over demonic chaos, he is the peace bringer, the order bringer. And then, demons in Mark always announce who Jesus really is. Uh, They often shout out his name, and then they say they know who he is. In Mark chapter 1, we see a demon uh, knows who Jesus is, and he shouts out, You're the Holy One of God. In our passage, uh, the demon-possessed man shouts out, uh, You're Son of the Most High God. Uh, And uh, this theme in Mark that we've been experiencing and journeying and thinking a lot about is who is Jesus? And Mark constructs his whole gospel around that theme, who is Jesus? And we've seen how the religious leaders and the disciples around Jesus, they don't get it thus far. They don't really understand who Jesus is. Uh, But we see demons and like the least likely people throughout Mark's gospel ending up speaking out who Jesus is. So it's like a big theme and Mark wants us to know who Jesus is. So in Mark chapter 1, you know, verse 1 is the very first verse of the gospel, the statement Mark makes about Jesus. He declares him to be Jesus, the anointed one of the Messiah, the Son of God. And then as Mark's Gospel builds, it's he offers clues pointing to who Jesus is, including demons shouting out who he is and things like that. And it builds towards the midpoint of the gospel. Chapter 8 Verse 29, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses him that he's, you're, you're the Messiah, you're God's anointed deliverer. But Peter never would have imagined in that moment that Jesus would be a crucified Savior as the rest of the Gospel of Mark will reveal. Reveal that aspect of who Jesus is. And then at the end of Mark, uh, that the centurion, who's a Gentile pagan, uh, he, as Jesus hangs on the cross and dies, declares, uh, who Jesus is. Surely this man was the Son of God. So Jesus, so Mark is always, his gospel is always pushing you and pushing me uh, towards belief in Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as Lord. And even the demons play their part in helping us see Jesus. You might be like, oh look, that's great Andy, but look, it's 2022 and uh, are you seriously asking me to believe in demons? Do you seriously believe that like this is a reality? Like, come on, these things can't be real. Well, here's just a few brief thoughts. Don't have time to unpack this in detail. Someday we will, but a few brief thoughts. First thought is, why not? Why not? Um, I could understand that we would be like, look, demons can't possibly be real if we don't believe that God is real. Like, that makes logical sense, right? But if we do believe in a personal, loving, creator, good God, why wouldn't we also have room for personal, destructive, tormenting, chaotic evil? There's a pastor in New York City that I uh, just really respect a lot. His name is Tim Keller. He's really helpful here. He says, it is illogical and it is irrational to believe Uh, Personal supernatural good could exist, but therefore personal supernatural evil couldn't. If personal supernatural good could exist, why in the world could personal supernatural evil not exist? Why wouldn't it? You might be like, well, okay, Andy, fine, but you know, the Bible are like primitive documents written to an ancient people uh, who just didn't have our superior knowledge or technology or wisdom. You know, we know things about the world that they couldn't have possibly known about the world, and so things that they called demons were probably like what we would call mental illness, or just they're just sickness, and they just didn't know. And it's superstitious, you know, primitive world, so they called them. Demons, well, um listen it actually the Bible has quite a sophisticated world view on many different things, and uh, we like to think we're superior to the ancient world, but oftentimes that dissolves into complete. Arrogance, and it's totally true that uh, in in the, in the days of Jesus, they would have absolutely no idea like what an MRI scanner would be or something like that, uh, and lots of other things. Uh, but the biblical authors knew how to distinguish distinguish illness from a demon. If you look at Matthew four twenty four. It says this, news about him, that means Jesus, spread, about, spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Okay? And so there's already a dis- distinguishing things between demons and illness, so that's fairly sophisticated. Uh, and if you actually dig into the Greek terms, w- the word there that in- is in the English translation, paralyzed in that list, it's actually a term to describe what we would call mental illness. So the biblical authors could and did distinguish between. Those things. Really, really interesting and something for us to reflect on if it's like, okay, the Bible is a primitive document it doesn't know anything about anything. Well, maybe not. Uh, and then just simply the, the terms that the Bible uses uh, for the demonic and, and, and things like that. Uh, you know, in our world, when we think demons, we think Hollywood and horror and, and, and stuff like that. And we think of demonic possession, like being completely controlled by the devil and stuff like that. Well, in the Greek terms, you know, th- where we would say someone is demonized, the Bible would say someone is demonized. It means more oppression and influence or like gradation of influence. It doesn't mean total uh, Possession means influenced by the enemy, that type of thing, rather than completely taken over by. Also, the worldview of the Bible, really comfortable and compatible, with the demonic realm, especially the New Testament. In the Gospels we see Jesus driving out demons, we see the disciples driving out demons, the book of Acts, they keep driving out demons. The New Testament letters are at pains to tell us that the Christian life is always opposed, that we have an enemy who is actively looking to take us out and to make us ineffective and unproductive and distracted and distant from Jesus and the life he has for us. Peter in his epistle reminds us, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the Devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul's letters tell us we're in a spiritual battle against the forces of evil in the world that are against Jesus and his kingdom. He tells us about strongholds in our minds in 2 Corinthians 10, which are like worldviews. Um, and for, in my experience, this is the most common realm of of spiritual warfare because it's all about what we believe. It's always, it's what's between our ears, our worldview. It's arguments, thoughts, lies that we might believe that the enemy then gets to energize. That's what the Bible calls a stronghold. What we believe and give ourselves to and with that influence us can create these strongholds that the enemy can occupy and energize. If you believe a lie of rejection, you will then live rejected and it's an open door for the enemy to step in and keep you bound up by rejection. Uh, And to torment you and to burden you throughout the rest of your life. And it doesn't have to be rejection. It could be any other lie that we take on and gets developed into a stronghold. The book of Ephesians that Paul wrote that we studied last year tells us demons are real and at work. They influence world systems. They influence individual people doesn't mean that everyone who doesn't follow Jesus that you bump into is possessed by the devil. It certainly doesn't mean that. Uh, but maybe you have encountered uh, situations where you just felt like you were in the presence of someone who has been formed by evil, like they've given themselves to evil, and that is now manifest in their life in a way that is currently unexplainable. Uh, maybe you've witnessed events of such cruelty and hatred and wickedness that it goes beyond, you know, people can be mean sometimes, and we shouldn't do that. There's like energy. There's like a a depth to the darkness that someone had uncontrollable behavior. Uh, Maybe you've had seasons where you personally felt under attack, even oppressed by darkness, like darkness was pressing in on you. Maybe you've had moments where you wanted to resist uh, patterns in your life, but you felt like, I cannot stop doing this thing. Other times we encounter evil that feels systemic and entrenched in society. Things like sectarianism, things like racism, like cycles of brokenness and poverty that just seemed entrenched and like energized and cannot be pushed back. Well, the climate we live in is not neutral. That's what the New Testament would say to us. There are forces and systems and powers that are working towards chaos in the world and are looking to undermine and oppose the church and us. Not everything is a demon aligned against us. Mental health challenges are most often mental health challenges. Physical illness is most often simply physical illness. Uh, Life is also just plain hard and it doesn't mean there's a demon there. You know if you get a flat tire this afternoon it's probably not a demon. It's just life is hard and hard things happen to us and we need to persevere. But it's also naive to think that we do not have an enemy who seeks to take us out of faith in Jesus and sow chaos in our lives and in the church and in the world. And that tells me something. You know, we, we talk a lot about formation, spiritual formation. Who are we becoming here? So it's time to take this incredibly seriously. I know because people like to ask me like do demons just jump on you or something like that? Well most often it's all about formation and what we're giving ourselves to and allowing to form and shape us. What are we taking into our lives willingly? What are we allowing in? What are we around? What are we marinating in? What are we thinking about believing in? What is forming us? And why do we think these things will have no effect on us? Whatever we allow to will control our narrative. And that's what will end up leading us, in some cases, controlling us. If we give ourselves to bitterness, rejection, anger, addiction, uh, the love and lust after power, greed, sex, perfection, these things and many, many more, they will begin to shape us. They will begin to form us and leave us open to demonic forces to gain footholds and make strongholds and begin to control us. Because it's idolatry, it's a worship of something, it's obsession with something over and above the one true God. That's why it's really hard to stop sinning. Sin and the enemy promise us everything and leave us with nothing. It's easy to start sinning and feel like you are in control you know, just a little bit uh, won't hurt me or affect me. I can stop this at any time. But then uh, then we realize we're actually stuck in a pattern of anger or bitterness or unforgiveness and rejection. You know, a little bit of those kind of things to indulge in my life, it's no big deal. But over time, it ensnares us and it ends up forming us and it ends up dehumanizing us and it ends up controlling us. And at the start, it promises us everything and required nothing. And in the end, It requires everything and gives us nothing. It wrecks our lives. And if we pursue Jesus, He sets us free. And He shapes and forms us. And we get to step into true freedom. The world says true freedom is do whatever you want. Be your own God. Do whatever you want, whenever you want. That's true freedom. But that is a great way to end up enslaved to our disordered desires. Okay? Actual freedom looks like submission to Jesus, to become alive and well in his kingdom, to be controlled by him and his gracious love and mercy and his spirit that he places upon us and in us. That's why the Bible talks about the fruit of the spirit. Uh, Evil spirits always deface life and cause chaos, destruction, and death. Jesus always brings freedom, order, and peace to the chaos of our lives. We need to choose carefully uh, which we want and how we're being formed. And then there's the last little thing I would say on why I believe that this actually happens today and is real today as my own personal testimony. I've experienced uh, oppression uh, from the enemy personally. And I would just say, you want to see if any of this is real? Try and step out in your calling in Jesus' name and you'll, feel, you'll experience the headwind and the friction that the enemy brings to keep us ineffective and unproductive. Uh, uh, I've seen strongholds demolished in my own life and I've helped other people do the same. I've seen demons flee. I've even seen someone uh, who we were ministering to in a deliverance session exhibit supernatural strength a bit like we we will see in this passage today. What I love most about the times I've been involved in helping people find freedom from demonic influence is the clear mercy and compassion they experience from Jesus when the demon flees and they're there. A deep peace rests on them and a deep desire to love and worship Jesus because they just encounter His love, that His power would come and save. Set them free from these strongholds in their life. It's a holy thing. It's a powerful thing. And that's the part about it I love the most. And I've just simply seen too much. I've seen Jesus bring freedom to too many people to realize. I've experienced to realize that this this is part of life as a Christian. That we need to resist evil, the works of the enemy, even personal evil in our lives. And we need to stay alert. And maybe you've had a season or in a season where you feel under sustained attack. Or there's something energizing a stronghold in your life. Maybe you feel like you're being oppressed by darkness. We have people who are trained to pray about these things. We have people who are mighty in deliverance in our community. But they're also wise and pastoral. And know really, really clearly that not everything is demonic. Not everything is a demon. But if you feel like there's some of these issues in your life, just email healing at BelfastCityVineyard.com. And we'll just sit down for a conversation about what uh, taking steps towards freedom might actually look like. Well, let's jump into our passage. Let's jump into our passage. And the first thing is, this ain't no holiday. This ain't no holiday. We pick up right where chapter 4 leaves off, which is unsurprising. Uh, Disciples and Jesus are in boats at the end of chapter 4, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. A big storm comes up, and Jesus stills the chaos of the sea and storm with a word. Uh, And again, Check out last week's talk. Matthew did an amazing job on that. But chapter 5 begins with their arrival on the other side. What was on the other side? Well, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that the region of the Gerasenes and some... Translations say Gadara or the reading of the Gadarenes. Uh, And for reasons which I don't have time to go into. Uh, But Matthew uh, talked to us last week about this principle of first mention. as really helpful when we study the scriptures. Like a tool to study the scriptures. Really, really helpful. Again, find his talk, listen to it, and put that tool in your toolbox. It'll help you love the Bible even more and read it and become more clear be wonderful. But what's also helpful, a great tool when we study the Bible, is also Geography. See, no place is neutral, okay? And when particularly the Gospels highlight a place, it's often important and it gives major insight into the passage that we'll miss if we don't look deeper into geography. So when you see a place mentioned, it's like, ding, I got to find out what's going on with that place, what happened there in the past, or where is this place, or why is this place significant? So the region where Jesus has landed, it was known as the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities, it was made up of 10 towns east of the Jordan River, and these were Gentile towns, not Jewish towns, so, which, so they were also heavily influenced by Hellenism, or, in other words, Greek values, practices, thinking. And in the decades leading up to the ministry of Jesus, the area had been tightly controlled by the Romans. And it was like a staging post or logistics center for the Roman army, the Roman legions, that also occupied Israel. So that's why there were there. That was why there were pigs there. That's where people are herding pigs. The pigs were there to feed the Roman legions. And as you probably know, uh, in the Jewish system, in the Jewish law, uh, pork is off the menu. It's an unclean animal, and you weren't allowed to eat pork, and you weren't allowed to tend swine or herd pigs because they're an unclean animal. So this region where Jesus makes landfall is to Jews and the disciples, who were good Jewish boys, who were with Jesus, and for the Jewish first readers of Mark's gospel, it would have been like beyond Thunderdome, like an unclean land, full of unclean people, because they're Gentiles, who are, who, there's loads of unclean animals there, and also it's like a base, it's like a uh, it 's like ground zero for the occupying, hated, brutal, unclean Roman rulers and armies that were actively oppressing them, so it is like bad news. It is hard for us to understand how stra- how, how little the disciples would have wanted to go there uh, and how horrifying and strange uh, they would have would have been. Uh, To realize that this is exactly where Jesus was taking them and intended to go. And just maybe picture in your mind and in your heart the worst place you can imagine to go. A place that would genuinely put fear in your heart and disgust in your heart to go to. And how, just so. And just think about how terrifying it would have been to be caught up in this storm upon the chaos waters that Jesus then calms, uh, but they're terrified of his power. And then they're coming in for a landing on the beach, and they realize exactly where they were. They went from a storm of chaos on the waters to a land of chaos their imaginations would have been running away from them and what they might encounter in this awful place they're going to enemy territory and right away their worst fears come true because they meet a monster they meet a monster and mark tells us there's this man with an unclean spirit he comes from the tombs to meet them he said lived in the tombs no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain He'd been chained hand and foot. This is, uh, this is a, a frightening situation. This man screaming, living amongst the tombs, supernatural strength, and he's rushing towards them as soon as Jesus puts his foot on the beach. He is so tormented by demons. He lives amongst the dead, amongst the tombs, and, uh, He's cutting himself and screaming day and night. Of course, uh, the demonic makes him unclean, but contact with the dead in the tombs renders you unclean in a Jewish system, and he's just infested with unclean spirits. And evil spirits, unclean spirits, they always deface life, they always cause chaos, they always cause destruction and lead people to death and away from Jesus. So it is a living nightmare rushing towards the disciples. Verse 6 says, when the man saw Jesus, he rushes towards him. Uh, So just picture it. You survive a storm, you land in a horrible place, Jesus steps onto the land, and here comes the screaming, demon-possessed man strong enough to break iron chains. He's as chaotic and as dangerous as the storm was on the sea. So why has Jesus gone here and what on earth is happening? Well, It's this unclean place. It is outside of Israel. It is full of darkness, really honestly enemy territory. And Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is here to take ground possessed by the enemy. And he's declaring that no place, no region, no person is off limits to him and his kingdom. And that God's rule and God's reign will be declared in Jesus far and wide to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And nothing is going to put him off from his mission. No storm, no fear in his own followers, no craft or power of the enemy, no demon, no uncleanliness in people and region. Nothing will put him off. Nothing frightens him. Nothing will prevent Jesus from having what he wants and who he wants. Nothing, including our own brokenness, our own failure, our own sin, shame, our own uncleanness. You know, many of us feel like a failure all the time when it comes to our faith. We feel too bad, too broken to really know Jesus. If he or other people really knew who who I was or what I would like, he wouldn't want me near. And so we keep ourselves at a distance. So in this passage, I want you to think about this really, really carefully. If Jesus intentionally goes to enemy territory to call followers and his first follower is the most unclean, demon-possessed person imaginable. Perhaps he is unafraid of our sin, of our shortcomings, of our own brokenness. And perhaps he wants us and welcomes us and loves us and wants us near him. Also important to think about for a moment is where are we? Are we following Jesus towards what we regard as enemy territory? Where in this city would you regard as enemy territory a place not to go? Are we following Jesus towards the least likely person? Are we following Jesus into sketchy situations? Are we following Jesus to the margins, the place that nice people don't go, but the Savior goes? Are we ready to declare His name, His kingdom there, and to depend on Him as He leads us there? I wonder if we might think about that as followers of Jesus together. Well, we're going to see a power encounter here. Again, this demonized man, he's rushing... Confront Jesus. It's what John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, uh, would always call a power encounter. A power encounter. When we declare the kingdom of God, when we step out, often it's challenged and resisted by the enemy, and this time it's directly challenged and resisted by the enemy. This man rushes at Jesus, but in the end he just falls at Jesus' feet. And the Greek word for fall at his feet is to prostrate oneself in worship. So, what Mark is trying to tell you is this is no contest. This guy. Uh, This demonized man came for a fight and to attack Jesus. And when he got in his presence, all he could do was submit and worship him. And to fall at his feet in a posture of worship. So he begins to scream out, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? God. He calls Jesus by name and then declares him to be the son of the most high God. See, demons always know who Jesus is. Uh, and we see this in James chapter 2 verse 19. If you, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and even shudder. In, in the ancient world, uh, knowing someone's name it was like having a power over them. Uh, And that's why in Revelation 19, Jesus is revealed as the divine warrior in that passage. And it says he has a name written on him that no one but he Knows. And that's, so it's no one has power over Jesus, the divine warrior, uh, Revelation 19. Uh, so the demon, he's trying to bluff and he's trying to intimidate. I know who you are. I have power over you. He's trying to posture and he's trying to frighten and to gain control of the situation and over Jesus. Which if you've ever done any deliverance, have been in that kind of situation, that's what demons always try and do. In verse 9, Jesus asks the demon his name. He demands his name of it, and the demon has to give it. He says, he is legion, for we are many. And again, this man is possessed by many demons. Uh, And uh, at this point, Mark switched from the singular to the plural. When he talks about the demon-possessed man and the things the demon is speaking out of him. He's so... Um, so he's trying to say, we're legion, we're many, and back off, basically, is what he's saying. But at the same time, he's begging Jesus not to torture him and to send him out of the area. And for some reason, the demons ask to be sent into these pigs nearby. And for some reason, Jesus grants their request. Uh, and the herd is sent into a frenzy, and it goes over the cliff, and they all drown, and the demons are destroyed. Jesus has total authority. That's part of the reason for that. As part of the picture. Uh, uh, and Jesus had to give his permission. But why did he allow the pigs to be destroyed? Uh, n- why did he let those animals be destroyed? Not to mention the monetary value that, the, that were, they would have been worth and to the people who owned and tended to them. Well, One reason is that the, the life of the tormented man was worth more uh, than huge amounts of money, and so was yours. And would you let that sink in? You know This is um, the worldview of the Bible. Matthew 10, uh, this is Jesus teaching, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. And this man was worth more than many pigs. Uh, Let's talk about contrasts. Uh, As you can imagine, this is big news. Uh, And those who tended the pigs went into town to tell all about it, and they come rushing out to see. And when they arrive, verse 15 says, They find this man clothed and in his right mind, seated at the feet of Jesus. That's the traditional posture of a disciple and an apprentice of Jesus, seated at the feet of the rabbi or teacher, learning from him. It's a discipleship posture. The people who would have been terrified of this man, who was tormented, but he also brought chaos to their lives in the region. But one encounter with Jesus... And chaos is turned into order. The man is full of peace. And what the enemy deformed, Jesus restored. Well, The crowds are terrified of Jesus. And then verse 17, they ask him to leave. Um, really interesting. After bringing peace to the storm in chapter 4, the disciples are afraid. And after bringing peace to the demonic storm in this man, the people are afraid of Jesus. It's like, well, why? Why is that? Well, It's about power and authority. Only God could do something like this. This is the one true God. And He may make claims upon us. And Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God and we should believe and love and serve and obey Him. Uh, But do we do this with Jesus today? Do we wish to send Him away? Do we know that deep down with Jesus will come order and peace uh, in an amazing way and we're attracted to that? But we also know that it will mean a radical change and shift in obedience. Uh, I once was involved in... Uh, talking to a man who himself, uh, he had given himself to the occult and he declared himself to be a worshiper of Satan. And this was a very troubled man and a very dark man and a very dangerous, uh, terrifying man. And I remember my last meeting with him uh, because at first he wanted me to pray and help him follow Jesus and to become free. Uh, but in the end, we met up and he just said to me, he looked me in the eyes. Uh, And he said, I do not wish to follow the Christian path. Uh, And I asked him, why not? And he said he wanted to give himself to the worship of Satan. And his main reason was because if he followed Jesus, he would have to surrender to him. And he did not want to give up his power, demonic, occult power that he had. He did not want to give up the control of others and the control of his life. He did not want to bow the knee to Jesus. Now, none of us are at that extreme. We know what it's like to resist Jesus, to not obey, to delay stepping out into our leadership calling, our destiny, to not do what He's asking of us to do. And is there anywhere where we are delaying or running from or resisting what Jesus is asking us to do? And I'm not saying you're demonized if that's you, but we, we know what it's like to say, Jesus, not this area of my life. Is it a relationship? Is it stepping out in ministry and our calling? Is it to do with your Uh, Your effort, your finances, is it an area of forgiveness or unforgiveness in your life? Today is a great day to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Take all of my life. I'm seated at your feet in the posture of a disciple. I'm surrendering to you. And so the townspeople are contrasted with the man. Uh, One chooses to be at Jesus' feet as a disciple. The others tell Jesus to leave and get away from their territory. Where are we asking him to leave because of his power and what it might mean if we place our faith and hope and love in every area of our lives, in him. We, all, we know what it's like to want his presence in life, but on our terms. Which of these two contrasts, the townspeople or the man, do we want to be? Well, let's talk about Jesus as Lord. Our passage ends with Jesus granting the people's request that he leave, but he doesn't grant the man's request. Uh, the man begs to be allowed to come with Jesus. See, people who have met Jesus and been saved by him and healed and delivered and ministered to him, they want to be with them. They want to be with Him. Do you want to be with Him? That's a great question to ask yourself today. Do you want to be with Him? Do you want to sit at His feet as an apprentice, as a follower, learning from Him how to live your, the life that He has given you? What would, it, what would it be like for you today to ask Jesus to stay with Him just like the man did? If you're interested in that, what would it look like to have rhythms in your life of friendship with Jesus where you're at His feet learning from Him Think about joining our Following Jesus course, which you can still sign up for on our website today as part of one of our life groups. That's where we talk about all those kinds of things. What does it look like to be at Jesus' feet and learn from him how to do life? So sign up for that. Jesus instead sends him home to his own people. And in Mark, most of the time, Jesus tells people to keep who he is quiet. Don't tell anyone. But here he tells him in verse 19 this, uh, Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. I personally find that some of the most moving language in the entire New Testament. He commissions him as the first missionary. A Gentile to the Gentiles proclaimed Jesus as Lord and God. He's sent out, but he's sent back home. The message is he's to proclaim is to how much the Lord has done for him and how much he's had mercy on him. Telling people about Jesus isn't about convincing them to believe our point of view. It should be about claiming how he is Lord and how we have found mercy and salvation in him. And notice how Jesus says how much the Lord, which in biblical terms, that's the word for God. That's Mark saying God to us. The Lord has done for you. And then in verse 20, it says the man runs off and tells his friends and neighbors how much Jesus has done For him. It's subtle, but again, it's Mark trying to tell us, dropping breadcrumbs and clues, that Jesus is Lord, Son of God, Messiah, and he wants you to believe in Jesus as Lord. So do you today? Do you today? And you might be like, look, I don't feel connected to the mercy and love of Jesus. Well, there's something else that Mark wants us to see in these verses. You know, many preachers have made this point, but We have to remember that the Gospels would have been read over and over and over aloud. Uh, They were meant to be read over and over and meditated on by their first hearers and by us. And the Spirit of God speaking to us through that process of repetition and reading and taking them into our lives. And so when we do that, we notice things. And reading Mark over and over, you will know how the story ends, right? It ends with Jesus on the cross. And so Mark is trying to tell us something. Mark is trying to get us to think about how very, very soon in this gospel, Jesus is going to be trading places with the demonized man. Very soon it's going to be Jesus stripped naked very soon it's going to be Jesus bleeding from cuts and wounds. Very soon it's going to be Jesus crying out amongst the people. Jesus will be crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as his nails are pounded into his hands. Very soon it's going to be Jesus driven amongst the tombs, into the tomb. He's going to trade places with this man. And he traded places with you. And he traded places with me. He took onto himself the evil and the injustice and the sin and the brokenness of the world, including yours and including mine, so we could be free and living in and living for him instead of enslaved by the enemy and the effects of our own disordered loves that drive us away from God and towards ourselves and other things as our gods. Mark wants us to see that. He wants us to see that death, sin, the devil, and the grave could not hold Jesus down. He wants us to know that he's risen and ruling and reigning. And he invites us to come and worship at his feet, surrender to him, follow him, and serve him knowing that our debt is paid, our freedom is secure in Jesus, forgiveness and grace from heaven and mercy is poured out upon us. Our adoption in the family of the kingdom of God is sure and certain and our own resurrection is guaranteed by his resurrection. That's how he wants us to face life. And just like the man, we are also sent as well to our homes and our streets, to our workplace, to North Belfast, to every part of Belfast and this island and beyond, to proclaim His goodness and His mercy and His resurrection life and freedom with all of our might and with everything we do. And just like Jesus, we are sent not just to speak words, but to bring order to the chaos of the world and its systems and its ways, one life at a time. And just like this man represents, no one is too far from Jesus, no place is off limits to the kingdom of God, no pandemic, no demon will ultimately be able to stand against the risen and coming King. Jesus. Will we respond today? Will we join him as he seeks and saves those who are far off, those who didn't even know they needed or wanted him, those places that are avoided, uh, called God forsaken in our minds and in our world? And will we, in Jesus' name, bring order to chaos, resist the works of the enemy, announce and demonstrate the kingdom in Jesus' name as we surrender to him and rejoice in his mercy shown to us? I want to pray for us. Lord, would you call us to follow Jesus and sit at His feet? I pray for those who right now, they want more of Jesus. They want to be at His feet as His disciple. I also pray for those of us we would describe our life as chaos. Lord Jesus, come and bring order to the chaos of our lives. Would you fill us with faith that none of us are too far from Jesus? And if you want to begin following Jesus, uh, just pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I give you the disorder and chaos and sin and shame and brokenness in my life. I want to follow you as Lord. I want to serve you. I want to know you want be part of your family. I confess my sin and ask you to forgive me and to occupy my life. I want to be your follower. If you prayed that and you want to begin to follow Jesus for the first time or recommit your life to that, email pastoral at BelfastCityVineyard.com. We would love to connect with you. Others of you just felt strongly that the Lord is, you're worried about your children or people in your family and you need to take faith and courage in this moment and continue to pray because there was, there's no one too far from Jesus. And he often goes into what we think is enemy territory and uninterested or hostile people, and he plucks them out and he saves them. And I just feel like there should be a wave of faith hitting us for those that we love that aren't currently following Jesus. I want to pray for us. Lord, would you empower us to preach your gospel and to do your works? Would you even anoint us for deliverance and to see people set free in Jesus' name? Lord, we want to give our lives to walking with you and to knowing you and being part of your mission to bring order to chaos, peace to a troubled world. Empower us to be your church in these times. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.